0: Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that this morning, would you give us a desire for you and only you? Any longings of our heart that would point in any other direction, Lord, would you change them? Help us to long to be with you and in your presence. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as as an occasionally or maybe often silly person, uh, there are some figures in history that I am really grateful for. One of those is C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis wrote these profoundly insightful children's books about talking animals. But he also did other stuff. He preached some incredible sermons. One of those he preached in 1942 the middle of World War II, maybe, as far as I know, maybe it's the most famous sermon of the 20th century. It's called The Weight of Glory, and it's fantastic. I recommend it to you. Well, he starts that sermon by talking about desire. Lewis said, in his day, people tended to think of desire as a bad thing. But of self-denial, kind of the opposite of desire, is the highest virtue. But Lewis said that he disagreed. He thought that desire, if it's pointed in the right direction, is vital. Actually, we need it. Because desire reminds us of something that's actually really important. Desire reminds us that something is missing. Desires make us look outside ourselves to find whatever it is that we lack, whatever it is that we need. What he said was that the problem with desire is that we and this is universal for sinners, point those desires in the wrong direction. We chase after things that couldn't satisfy us. The standards or the objects of our desire are actually too low. A lot of times this plays out in things that are very obviously bad. So we desire money in bad ways and we call that greed. You see desire play out in bad ways in things like affairs or people who have a thirst for power. But you can also see desire play out even chasing after good things like affirmation or legacies or safety or security or maybe just desperately trying not to be bored. But when those desires for good things are ends in themselves, they don't go anywhere. They don't satisfy. They're shallow. When I was living in Birmingham, I used to... Actually, I heard this story several times. It was really funny. Like I would talk to these guys who were talking about how they became Christians. And they would say things like, well, I just graduated from college. And i just gotten the job that I wanted in my field and everything felt good. Alabama had just, their football team had just won the national championship and they were undefeated this year. And even though they were good, I still felt empty. Something was missing. Even higher things, things even higher than Alabama football, if you could imagine such a thing. Like the grandeur of nature. You could enjoy something like the Grand Canyon, but you can never really do more than look at it. And when you leave, you can remember it. You can remember that it was beautiful, but you can't like participate in it. This is an avatar. You can't plug into it. All you can do is behold it. And that's good, but it ends. It doesn't really go anywhere past that. Other great things, like beautiful music, art, they move us, or friendships, or family, people that we love. These are all good things, and there's joy in there. But there are also things that come and go. can't hold on to them. If we make them ultimate, they can't satisfy us. At their best, which is very good, what they do is draw us into a desire for something that's even greater. At their best, they stir our desires for the God who made them, or for the God who is love. And ultimately, that was Lewis's point in his sermon, that the reason we have desires and longings is because they're meant to point us to the fact that we were made to live in the presence of God. That's what we're created for. And if that's our purpose, then he is the only one who can actually satisfy our longings, who can meet those desires. Life in the presence of God is our home. A home that we are hardwired to long for home that we have lost, even if we can't remember it. But whether we recognize it or not, a home that we are hardwired to long for. So Lewis basically says that desire, our longings, are echoes of that homesickness, hardwired into our hearts, hardwired into our souls. Well, this idea of being banished from your home isn't one that Lewis made up. It's actually a thread that runs all the way through scripture. Think about Cain after he murders Abel. He's sent to wander. Jacob has to run away from Esau. Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. Israel has to spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. David has to run away from Saul. Elijah has to run from Ahab and from Jezebel. And then the big one, Israel itself, brought into exile, plucked out of the promised land. But if you know any of those stories, You also know that none of those stories are the original story in the Bible. They're all echoes of the exile that began in Eden when Adam and Eve tasted that forbidden fruit and were kicked out of the garden. And that's the beginning of a universal exile that all of humanity, all of us, have had to wander in. But you can also look at the whole story of the Bible as the story of that exile and of God bringing that exile to an end. You get glimpses of that in all those figures that I just mentioned. Even Cain gets a new city to dwell in. Jacob gets to go back to the promised land with his family. Joseph's bones are going to be restored in Israel after he dies. David is eventually going to claim that kingship, and he's going to settle in Jerusalem. God's going to provide for Elijah and ultimately call Elijah home to himself. Israel's going to be restored to the promised land. All of these are glimpses of that big arc, the big story. It's a story of God bringing his people to himself, ending their wandering, calling them home. So if that's true, if the whole Bible is this story of God restoring wandering people to their home, it's not surprising to see Revelation end with that very thing. It's not surprising to see Revelation end with humanity going back home. Here's what is surprising, though, about the way that Revelation ends. We're wired to think of Revelation being mostly something that tells us about things that are coming, things that haven't happened yet, but things that are coming. But the end of Revelation is not a vision of the future. It's Jesus talking to those seven churches that this letter is for, those seven churches that are being persecuted, that are struggling, that he's warning and encouraging. It's Jesus talking to those seven churches now about their own present. Gives them a glimpse of how God sees them. A glimpse of how God sees them in their present. So let's look at that glimpse. So we're in Revelation 22. I want you to look at verse 14. Let me read that. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. I want you to hear a few of those words that just popped up. Tree. Robes. Gates. Do you hear the echo of a story, an Old Testament story, at the very beginning that includes those same things? We talked about homesickness, the reality of this exile, the ways that we're all driven by this need to go back home. Well, here at the very end of Revelation, Jesus is showing his people the undoing of that exile in Eden. Think about the trees. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that disobedience brought death. Because it was a tree they didn't have the right to eat from. But in this city, God's people eat from the tree of life and it sustains them. And they don't have to steal the fruit of the tree because it's their right. God has given it to them. Think about clothing. Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 3 are given animal skins to wear to cover their shame, to cover their disgrace. That wasn't a bad thing. That was an act of God's grace. But it was provisional. It wasn't meant to be forever. But the citizens in this city wear white robes that have been washed. They're wearing priestly clothes. They're wearing clothes that are meant for worship, clothes that are meant for people who are in the presence of God. Look at the gates. Adam and Eve, when they're sent out of Eden, can't go back in because the way back is barred by angels. They can't pass. But here the same gates that keep out the evildoers, the practicers, the lovers of falsehood. Those same gates are open for God's people so they can come into the city. The way is open. And you might say, okay, that's great, but that that sounds like the future. That doesn't sound like our present at all. You said present. Stephen and Eric are the only ones in here wearing white robes. No one's eating stuff off of trees right now. But look closer at those things. The washing of those robes, this is baptism. It's the washing that cleanses us and makes us fit to enter into the city of God makes us fit to be in his presence. That washing that continues to cleanse us as we live lives of confession and repentance. The tree of life offers the life of Jesus. We receive that life when we eat the fruit of that tree and the bread and in the wine. So that means that in baptism, in the bread and the wine and the Eucharist, we are actually in the city. We are participating in realities, yeah, that we can't see, taking our place in a city, though, that is actually here now. A refuge from this world of sin and death, even while we are looking forward to that world that is to come. From God's perspective, which is true, the people who are washed in the water and in the Spirit, the people who receive Christ and the bread and the wine, Are actually experiencing the first fruits of humanity's homecoming. The first fruits of the end of that exile, which means that the exile is over and this is home. Not the building, but I mean the body of Christ, gathered together to worship. We are participating in glimpsing something that's actually even better than Eden was. That's hard to believe. We don't see the white robes. We don't see the tree. We don't see the city's gates. And actually, I think if we're honest, a lot of times we see the opposite. At least that's what it seems like. There are things that happen in the church that blaspheme the name of Jesus. And things like that that have come out this week even. Things that blaspheme the name of Jesus and that really harm people. I'm not trying to minimize that or act like that's not happening. Because God hates that. And even when those evils are absent and we don't see them, faith is still hard. It's hard to believe that there is anything realer than the things that we could see or touch. It's hard to believe that a gift could be given or a home could be given that we can't see and touch and feel right now. When it's so hard to believe, why wouldn't we fill the empty spaces in our hearts with things like our jobs or chasing after money? or sports, or entertainment, or the little smart cruxes that we put in our pockets. Why wouldn't we chase after those things? We know they're real. We can feel them when we touch them. But the point of revelation, the point that Jesus is making to these seven churches, is that there is no home for us other than the presence of God. There's no other gate into a city There's no other food that could sustain us except for what he gives us here in the word and at the table. There is no way in other than that Jesus who died and who rose and who has ascended. And it's true that we're still waiting for that home. We're still longing for him to come, right? That that rider on the white horse that we talked about in chapter 19 that rider on the white horse coming back to to take his bride. To take us. Not as we are now, but as we're going to be when the bride is finally ready for the groom. But even though that home and all of its fullness is still in front of us and we're still waiting for it and still longing for it, it is actually given to us to dwell in, even right now. Which means that the end of all of your longings, the end of all of your desires, even if you recognize it or not, The one who can satisfy you is giving himself to you even now. Actually here and actually present. And he offers you the food from the tree of life. So this is the call for us. Don't labor for things that can't satisfy. Don't waste the longings of your heart on things that can't satisfy you, that can't feed you. This Jesus is greater than all of the copies and all the replicas that we put in his place. And he has prepared a feast for us here in our new home in the presence of God. The invitation is for us to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.